Good afternoon. Appreciate everybody coming, and I appreciate everybody watching online. Uh, we are in Revelation. I know that's a big shock and surprise to each and every one. We're in Revelation 1, which is, should be another great, huge shock. We've been at this for three weeks, and we are really moving now. We are on verse 9. So we're, we're averaging about, what, four a, a week? So that's pretty good. I guess that's pretty good. We'll, we'll try to get to verse 12 tonight, so we'll keep that average going. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, brother, if you don't mind, we're going to pray for your wife as well because I know she's not feeling well. Any other prayer request? Mm -hmm. And if you have something online, let me know, and we'll, we'll pray for you uh, if you'll send me a comment. But let's go to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your many blessings upon our life. Lord, for allowing us the opportunity to come into your house to worship, to praise, and to honor your name. Lord, we ask that you'll move, that you'll touch the Lord, that you'll... Bless my lips so that I can say what I need to say, Lord. Bless our ears that we can hear what we need to hear and bless our hearts that we can receive it all, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you'll touch those that are sick, Lord, those with migraines, Lord, that you'll take and heal their bodies. Lord, only you can do this, but we know that you can because you said in your word, by your stripes we are healed, Lord. We stand upon that blessing and on that promise, God. We ask, Lord, that you'll move here tonight. In Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray, amen. We are on verse 9, and as I've often called myself, I am your tour guide, Robbie. So, I'm... Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, your mom's watching and Sister Turner's watching now. Hi, Mom. <laughs> That's why I call my mother-in-law Mom. She Years ago, when we first got married, she said, I asked her what she could, I could call her, and she said, call me mom. And I'm like, I only have one mother, and she's in Tennessee. It was what, within probably a week or two, I was calling her mom, so she threatens to beat me all the time, too, just like my mother did, so it's just natural for me to call her mom. Verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to pause here for just a second and explain this next section. This is not Robert Words. This is one of the few times that Robert went to a Bible encyclopedia and stole the information about the isle of Patmos. The location of the dramatic revelation of Christ recorded in this book was the island of Patmos, a small island in the Aegean Sea southwest of Ephesus and between Asia Minor and Greece. According to several early church fathers, Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, and Eusebius, John was sent to this island as a prisoner following his effective pastorate at Ephesus. Victorinus, the first commentator on the book of Revelation, stated that John worked as a prisoner in the mines on the small island. So John, John was a miner, not a young person, but an actual miner. Don't know what they was mining, but he was a miner. When the emperor Dominiatin died in AD 96, his successor Nerva let John return to Ephesus. During John's bleak days on Patmos, God gave him the tremendous revelation embodied in this final book of the Bible. This is the first of three times, though, that the author refers to himself as I, John. In later instances in Revelation, he writes, 
in Revelation 21 and 2, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Revelation 22 and 8 says, And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. This is a little different from his or John's other books. In 2nd and 3rd John, he is the elder. 2nd John verse 1 says, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all that they have known the truth. In 3rd John, first verse, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. But in the Gospel of John, he is a disciple. John 21 and 24 says, This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So we, we understand a little bit better, and I, I keep harping on this, and I apologize, but it is important we understand that this is John the Beloved, John the Disciple, John the Apostle, the writer of First and Second. Third John, those are the people, that's the man that we are talking about. He was a witness, a personal witness to Jesus. We know he was so close to Jesus that at the Last Supper, he was the one that had his head on Jesus' shoulder. That's how close he was to Jesus. Physically had laid over on Jesus. So we know that this gives a little bit more credibility. Now, it's written in the Bible, so there shouldn't be any question about the credibility, but this gives more credibility to the book of Revelation. He's seen so much in his world, and now he's seeing our world, and maybe even beyond our world. John is letting those that read this book that is true, and that is an eyewitness account of the things written in the book. He was being persecuted because of his beliefs, and if it wasn't true, he, John, would not suffer these things for a lie. It is this suffering that John and others in the scriptures endured that the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, Tribune Lee Strobel, uses to determine that Christ really is who he says he is. In A Case for Christ, written in 1998, Mr. Strobel interviews, cross-examines experts in theology and determines that the suffering and persecution that they endured, talking about the, the guys of old, not the theologians, but those things that they endured was a valid test for the authenticity of Christ. In other words, would you be tortured for a lie? Most of us wouldn't be tortured for the truth. We'd, we'd recant everything we ever knew. But they actually held up under their scrutiny and the testimony and the whippings and the flailings and the burning and the crucifixion. Peter was crucified upside down, they tell us. Andrew was crucified in a, in a, on a cross in the shape of an X. Some had, were beheaded. Some was boiled in oil. We had um, Polycarp, who was a after Christ, but he was one of the modern, well, I won't say modern, but he was one of the later day apostles and prophets, if you will, He and literally became a martyr. They tried to burn him at the stake. 
and the fire wouldn't catch. It just kind of smoldered. Josephus tells us that they poked him, they cut him, and his blood ran out and put out the fire. So we would you would you take that kind of abuse if you did not truly know what you're talking about and what you believe? I can't I wouldn't. I'm not so sure I would take that kind of abuse even if I do believe and I do believe, but I don't know that I can take that kind of abuse and torture to be honest with you. None of us in a modern day America understands what persecution really is. And I don't think we can truly say, yeah, I'll take it. We don't know. We have no we have no bearing and no reference for it. So I don't know that we could literally say that we would and could take the abuse. We see Stephen was the first martyr. And the guy that held his coats or coat held the coats of the ones that stoned Stephen was a young man named Saul. We know him as Paul. And Stephen looked up and said, I see the face of Jesus. I see the face of God and laid down. And the Bible says he went to sleep. Well, we know that he was killed by the stoning, but he went as peacefully as you possibly could go being stoned because the writers and the man who wrote it was Paul himself. He was an eyewitness to it. He described him as just going to sleep. He just laid down and went to sleep. Would you allow someone to throw rocks at you if you didn't believe? I don't think you would. I'm a, I love to study history and I love to read about knights in shining armor. I've always been that kind of a guy. When they overthrew the Knights Templar, when the king and the pope decided that they'd had enough of the Knights Templar and you can believe whatever you want to believe. Some say that they, you know, the Knights Templar was crooked and some say that the king owed them a lot of money and he decided to destroy the Knights Templar to, so he wouldn't have to pay them back. I kind of believe that version, to be honest with you. But they went in and they arrested a large amount of the Knights Templar and they tortured them and tortured them and tortured them until they recanted their beliefs in Jesus Christ. Now these are knights, they had fought in the Crusades, but most of them, or a large percentage of them, including their head knight, recanted and said, no, he did not truly believe in Jesus. But now when they tied him to the stake to burn him, he recanted his recanted and said, yes, he did believe, he only said he didn't because of the torture that they had put him through. We know in the war, they would torture individuals. They would torture prisoners of war until they would get the information out of them. And uh, I don't recommend the book because of the language, but John McCain wrote an interesting book about his days as POW in Vietnam, and he talked about the various members in his jail or in his cell or in his torture chamber, whatever you want to call it, and how they would drag them out and beat them and they would, the other prisoners would hear them getting beat and then they'd throw them back into the cell on the ground or on the floor, barely fed, barely clothed, and barely alive, just to get the prisoners 
under their subjection. So I don't know that we could literally say that we could withstand the, the torture that John and some of the others did. Now we know that John died as an old man. He's the only one of the 12 disciples that did not die violently. He died in, as an old man. Some say they, that he died in his sleep. So I don't know that part, but he died as an old man. He had, he had not died on Patmos. They let him go, and he went back to his city of Ephesus and took up preaching again. We know that he took up preaching again. So is to read beyond the scriptures as to the history of what took place, I recommend the complete works of Josephus because he was one of the first hit that into his uh, his beliefs and his studies. But it is important to understand that these guys withstood so much. And still they they went to the cross. They went to the beheading. They went to the oil. They went to the fire. And they never, never one time said anything negative about Christ. That's why it's important we understand who wrote the book of Revelation. Verse 10 says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet. We are finally getting to the vision. It's taken us three weeks to get here, but we're here. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In both the Old and New Testament, the phrase, the day of the Lord or the Lord's day was used. Note that the word Lord's is possessive, which shows that it was a certain date, not Saturday or Sunday, as some would have you to believe. Why is that important? A lot of people will, will come up to you and say, why do you go to church? Because Sunday is a pagan day. It's the day that the Romans used to worship the sun god. And Saturday had some connotation, and Wednesday, and all of them. All of the days of the week were named after either a god or some celebration. So why do you go to the Lord's house? Why do you go to church on, on a pagan day? Well, you got to go sometime. And there's no other day of the week. So if you go Sunday, if you go Saturday, if you go Friday, if you go Thursday, if you go Wednesday, who cares? You're going. That's the important thing. And the second Thing is, if you're going to church, make sure it's a God-believing, Bible-believing church. Don't go to some of these that are not Bible believers or do not believe that Christ is the only way. We have to understand also that John was not particularly saying that it was on a Sunday or it was on a day of the week. He was actually saying, this is the day that the Lord comes back. This day belongs to God. And he's coming back on this day. That's what his vision showed him. And that's the way he reported it. And that's what we're looking at is a firsthand eyewitness report or an account of what took place. Isaiah 2 verse 12 says, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty. Isaiah 13 and 6, How ye for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 13 and 9, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. It's a fearful thing to be in the hands of a 
a wrathful God. We don't want to get there. We do not want to get there and we don't have to be there. So many are waiting until the very last. They believe in this deathbed salvation. And yes, there is such a thing as deathbed salvation. If you have a deathbed. I had a good friend walked out of his bedroom, walked into his kitchen where his mom was at and killed over dead. He didn't have a deathbed. Had another good friend that was coming home from work one afternoon and a car head-on collision killed him immediately and instantly. He didn't have a deathbed. You're not guaranteed a deathbed. You're guaranteed death. That's the number one thing that we can all hang our hats on where all this body of flesh is going to die eventually. So let's not worry about waiting until the deathbed. Let's just go ahead and make it right now. Isaiah 34 and 8 says, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Oh, now, now we're talking about a wrathful God and the Lord's vengeance. And that's something churches don't want to talk about anymore because, oh, God is love. Well, he is. He is love. But he's also got a side that is wrathful. And ask uh, some of the children of Israel as they came out of the land of Egypt and the land opened up and swallowed them whole. Ask them about God's wrath. Ask the enemies of, of God that stood in the way of David the king. Ask them about the wrath of God. But I'm going to say something and, and hear what I'm saying. God doesn't send us to hell. God does not send us to hell. We put ourselves on that bus and we take ourselves to that place. It wasn't designed for man to be in hell. That was designed for the angels that fell and Satan himself. That's what hell was designed for. God doesn't put us there. Our sin of disobedience puts us there. So there is a day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense for the controversy of Zion. Joel 1 and 15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand and as destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Joel 2 and 1, blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. It's God's holy land, but yet he's saying sound an alarm. So there's some reason why he needs to warn us or he needed to warn the inhabitants back then. And that was the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem, of the land of Israel and of the land of Judah. So he, he's trying to warn us now. He's doing everything he can to get our attention except for what we see coming up later in Revelation, the plagues and the actual destruction that comes. He's doing everything he can to get our attention. My dad used to plow with an old pony. He had two ponies at one time. One was named Buck and the other one was named Red. Guess what color Red was? When you knew him, he was getting gray. But he literally was a roan or a red colored. And when he would plow with this pony, he would always carry a long stick. A long 
branch, basically, a real slender, we would call it a switch, but it was really long. And I asked him one time, I said, Dad, what are you going to do with that switch? He said, well, sometimes, son, I have to get his attention. And he'd say to the pony to do something, if the pony didn't do it, he'd take that switch and he'd pop him right between the ears and say, now do it. And the pony would go and do what he needed. He never hurt the pony. He did get his attention. He disciplined the pony like we should discipline our children like we were disciplined, he disciplined the pony. God disciplines those he loves, he says. He chastens those who loves, but he gets our attention somehow. Sometimes he takes a little bit harder, it took a long time for him to get my attention, and it took quite a bit to get my attention, but he got it. And he still got it, and he will always have it. But I was doing everything I thought I was supposed to do, but I wasn't giving him time. I was teaching, I was preaching, I was doing everything, reading my Bible, I was doing all of that, but I wasn't in a personal relationship with him. He said, well, you know what? I'm just going to stop you from running from me. Now you can't move. And that's where I laid for a few days. And we won't go into that, but he got my attention. Very, very closely, he got my attention. But you know what? I'm like that little pony. Sometimes he has to mm -hmm. take that switch and pop me between the ears again because he still needs to get my attention. He needs to sound an alarm. He needs to blow the trumpet. So there's some reason why he's warning the inhabitants of Zion there's something about to happen. And today he is warning and he is blowing and he is having his alarm blown in America because something is about to happen. Are we paying attention? That's the question. Let all of the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Joel 2 and 11, for the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it, or who his world, his day is very awesome, very magnificent, very wonderful, but it is also for those that are not followers of Christ, it is going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be the worst day in their life if they don't know Christ when all of this takes place. Joel 2 and 31, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. We just had a blood moon. We call it a blood moon because that's what happens. The blood turns red when we have a lunar eclipse. But this is different than just a normal, everyday occurrence blood moon. This is not a blood moon, it says the moon will be into blood or the color of blood. The sun shall be turned into darkness. The moon reflects the sun's light. If we have a solar eclipse, we cannot have a lunar eclipse at the same time. 
It's not possible. So some will tell you the sun. We just had a, a solar eclipse a few years ago. We're going to have one in two years. Here in America, we're going to get to see a total solar eclipse here in the United States over towards Texas. But in, in that day, when we have that solar eclipse, we will not have a lunar eclipse, and that's what causes us to have a blood moon. It can't happen on the same day. Earth is not in position for a solar and a lunar eclipse. Now, we can have a solar eclipse, and a few days later, we could have a lunar eclipse, or a few weeks later, we could do that. A month later, not a problem. But what this is saying is the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. That's in the same day. So this is not an eclipse. This is something different, and we'll talk about that when we get to it in Revelation. Joel 3 and 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Where's the valley of decision? Where you are at right now. That's your valley of decision. Oh, yeah, there's a physical place, but you are physically in your valley of decision right now. Are you going to look to the Lord? Or are you going to say, I can go on my own? If you're going to go on your own, how's that working out for you? Probably not so good. Amos 5 and 18, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what ends is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. There's going to be a lot of people that not make it when Christ comes back. So when we stand around, yes, I would love to see the Lord come. But I want to see more people come to God. I want to see churches full again. I want to see families put back together again. I want to see true worship happen again. And that only happens with me. It starts with me. But I know people that are just, they're just looking so and longing so for that day of rapture. But how many people are going to be lost on the day of rapture? We're basically condemning them to death by pining away and hoping and hoping and, and looking and worrying and troubling ourselves over when is the day of the Lord. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guest. So often we would do better if we keep our mouth shut and listen. We go to God in prayer and we say, Oh Lord, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. Thanks God and get up and leave. When was the last time we asked God what he wanted? Nothing surprises God, but I do believe that when a Christian actually goes to God and says, Lord, what would you have for me to do today? I think God takes a step back and goes, whoa, wow, that's, that one's good. I like that. It didn't surprise him, but I think it surprises him because, wow, here's somebody that's actually asking in earnesty, what do you want me to do today? Sephaniah 1 and 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man, shall cry there bitterly. 
Why am I taking so much time and reading all of these other scriptures from all these other books of the Bible? You cannot study the book of Revelation without you get into all of the other 65 books of the Bible and into the historical books as well, like Josephus. We have to understand that everything around in the scriptures is built on everything else in the scriptures. And it was written over hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, 1,500 years actually. Several 40 different people, I believe, helped pen the book of the Bible. Now, God gave the words, but there was stenographers, and they wrote the words down that God told them. And it fits perfectly. It fits like a glove. So the reason why we're going back and we're reading all of these and we're spending so much time and why we will spend so much time reading through the Bible, because when we get through with the study of Revelation, we have we will have studied the other 65 books as well. We will have done a complete Bible study. It's so that we can see that it all fits together. Now we're back thousand, we're back a hundred, well, let's see, we are back a thousand years easily from Revelation to some of these prophets in the Old Testament. Easily a thousand years, 1,500 years, 2,000 years. We go back that far, and yet we see that they saw some of the same things that John saw. Now, if that's not God, who is it? Evolution? Drugs? Don't work. Some powerful, sovereign, omniscient billion has to have been behind the writing of the word. Has to be, because it fits too closely. We, we have went... I'm not even going to try to count, but we're in like six or seven different books just because of if I was in the spirit of the Lord's day. That took us six or seven different places in the Old Testament, and we're still there. Sephaniah 1 and 18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. Sephaniah 2 and 3, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have brought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. What does the Bible, what does Jesus say in the Beatitudes about blessed be the meek? For they shall, what? Inherit the earth. Sephaniah said it way back then. Jesus said it here. Seek ye the Lord and all the meek, and it shall, you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Zephaniah said that. Jesus said it. Now John said it. See how it all fits together? Zechariah 14.1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. We're in Malachi now. Behold, I will send you. Malachi 4 and 5, Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. Elijah the prophet. Wait, Elijah was even before Malachi. So who, is he really talking about Elijah the prophet, or is he talking about somebody else? When you study this verse, you understand that he is talking about John the Baptist. 
Because even back in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where it talks about John the Baptist, they literally thought it was Elijah that had came back. And even in the days of, of Christ on the cross, he calls out. And they say, oh, he's asking for Elijah and Elisha. No, he's talking about in Malachi, he is talking about John the Baptist because he came before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2. Now we're in the New Testament, but we are not to John's time where he's at on Patmos. Paul's writings, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Peter even gets his hand in this one. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, consider a volcano for just a second on this verse. Elements shall melt with fervent heat. That's a pretty hot little thing. It's called a volcano. It melts rocks. But apparently it's not hot enough to melt everything because there's a cone. Have you ever thought about that? The, yeah, it melts rocks, but it's not melting completely through the mountain. So the elements shall melt with a fervent heat is hotter than a volcano. Because it's going to melt up everything. That's going to be a hot time. And I'm not talking about in a good way. I was in the spirit refers to the spiritual vision John was given by Jesus. We go back to the verse that we, we left and he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the spirit refers to the spiritual vision John was given by Jesus. We look to some other verses in Revelation. Revelation 4 and 2, which we will study in the future. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Revelation 17 and 3, So he carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman set upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Revelation 21 and 10 says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. I was in the spirit just means that he's having a spiritual vision and he's there in his, in his spiritual form, if you will, and it's just as it's really truly happening. These verses reveal that the vision was a spiritual meaning that John was seeing all of these events in the spirit. He was spiritually teleported to these days, if you'll allow me to use the word teleport, and he saw it as it happens in the future. So he was spiritually transported to the future. He time traveled, if you will. Therefore, that some find Revelation hard to understand and believe, John wrote the events using his experiences and knowledge. Not saying that John was dumb, but how would somebody, and we talked about this the first week, how would someone from the 1700s describe our mobile phones? Imagine if, if somebody, let's say George Washington, let's say 
George Washington was transported to the 21st century and he sees this device on this device, what's he gonna describe? Or he sees us walking down the highway or driving down the car in the car and with this box pressed up to our ears. He can understand the color black and he could understand that it was rectangular. Most of us have a rectangular phone, but that's really all he could understand. He couldn't understand the concept of plastic. He couldn't really understand the concept of thin glass. And he has no way of knowing about a battery. He has no way of knowing about wireless. Perhaps the description would be somewhat cryptic if they tried to describe it. A machine used to talk to unseen entities or people that are invisible to our eyes. They may have even used verbiage such as fire in a device that is held to a person's ears to talk to. The fire would be the light it displays because they certainly would have no concept of LEDs or light emitting diodes. So as we are reading Revelation, often we would like to ascribe what we know to what John saw. And we all do it, and it's okay to do it, but I caution you, don't get called up in it. Because we don't know when the Lord's day is going to take place. We are not sure the technology that we will have at that time. Our logic may not work regarding the events and items that John saw. In Revelation 8 and 11, where we read of Wormwood, and we all dig into this when we get there, Sometimes we define it as or attribute it to an ICBM or an intercontinental ballistic missile. But is it? He said it fell like a torch, fell into the waters, went a third of the waters bitter. Could be a nuclear-tipped warhead. Could be something totally different. John heard a trumpet that spoke. But that's not what the scripture says here. And we let's go back and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet. That's the way he described Jesus' voice. I heard it as a trumpet. He's not saying a trumpet spoke. He's saying the voice was like a trumpet. Well, we all know what a trumpet sounds like. It's very loud, it's very clear. He heard a voice. He heard a very clear voice. A voice that was heard over the background noise and was certainly attention getting. In the days prior to the internet, phones, and telegraphs, to sound the alarm or warning, someone would blow a horn. A shofar at, or an ancient horn, made usually of a ram's horn, used in ceremonies and for warnings. Other devices, such as trumpets and bugles, have been used and are still being used for alarms or for attention-getting sounds. This voice that John heard was clear and attention-getting. It cut through the background noise. It dispelled the noise, and you heard the trumpet. You heard the, the voice. 
A clarion call, a strongly expressed clear sound that demanded just from the sound alone attention. Get in a quiet room and let someone sneeze and watch four people jump. And this is even before coronavirus, okay? Nowadays, seven people you know, just collapse and faint. But you get in a quiet room and you let some noise happen and people will be startled because it gets their attention in a, in a very quick and abrupt manner. Well, that's what John is describing here. It wasn't that John is saying that there was a voice or a trumpet that spoke, or it wasn't a, a voice that sounded like a trumpet, like we hear a trumpet. It was a voice that was clear, was loud, and was extremely attention-getting. What did the voice say? The voice said in verse 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, the seven churches of the Asia Minor. They're not the only churches, but those are the main churches. And notice, this was one of his churches that he had helped start, was Ephesus. Here again, Jesus identifies himself as the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And we saw that all the way back in verse 8, which was just last week. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Mm -hmm. The very next thing is command to write in a book or a scroll, if you will. What John was seeing would be seeing. He is instructed to write this down and send it to the seven main churches in Asia. What we know today is modern Turkey. This command is the first of 12 commands to know, to write down what he sees. Now, he was told not to write one thing. He was told to write everything but one. Here he says, write everything. But later he says, don't write this. Did God contradict himself? No, he did not. Because what was not written down, we don't need to know right now. What was written down that was, or what wasn't written down that John saw, we will know when we get there automatically. Revelation 1 and 19 says, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Write the things which you've seen the things which are right now, and the things that are in the future. His future and possibly our future. Revelation 2 and 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith thee, he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. We know that the stars and the seven golden candlesticks represents the angels and the churches. Revelation 2 and 8, and unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Revelation 2 and 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things which saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. 
2 and 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Revelation 3 and 1. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Mm, that could be us. Modern day church. Revelation 3 and 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Revelation 3 and 14. And to the angel of the Laodiceans write, These things saith they, Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He describes himself differently in each of the start of the seven letters. And there's a reason why he describes himself differently, and we will discuss that as we get into Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Revelation 14 and 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. And he saith unto me, Right, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Revelation 21 and 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Behold, I make all things new. That's going to be amazing. No pollution. No crime. Truly, peace. We'll see the world the way the world was designed to be seen. The whole world will be like the Garden of Eden. That's going to be great. And in verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Hearing the voice, John turns. Some people assume that he turned around because the voice was behind him, and this is how the verse reads in the complete Jewish Bible. However, and it's just a small matter, John may not have had to turn completely around. He could have just turned to one side or the other. We don't know. He turned. That's all that's important. He turned so he could see the voice or see whom was speaking. Since the scriptures state that he turned, he turned. And here we are seeing seven golden candlesticks. We're back with seven. Gold is the first mention in the book of Genesis. Golden candlesticks. Genesis 2 verses 11 and 12, the name of the first is the Pison, that is which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, and there is Delum and the onyx stone. So the gold of Havilah is good. And that's the first mention of the word gold in the, in the scriptures. Gold lampstands or menorahs were used in the temple and was even made for the tabernacle. 
The difference between the tabernacle in Exodus 25 and the temple, Solomon, beginning in uh, 1 Kings chapter 5, was the tabernacle was a large portable tent that God told Moses to build, and the temple was a large building that God had Solomon to build. The candlesticks in each were used for light. From the NASB, Exodus 25, 31 through 37 says, Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides. Three branches of the lampstand from one side and three branches of the lampstand from its other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in the one branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So for the six branches going out from the lampstand. And in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. A bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it, for the six branches come out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it. All of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamp seven in number, and they shall mount its lamp so that it shed light on the space in front of it. Why in the world do we go back and we read about the lampstands in the Old Testament? Because we see Christ in among seven golden candlesticks. This is not single candle candlesticks. Some would tell you that it is, but it's not. And the reason I say that is because we just read the directions on how to make a candle stick for the tabernacle and for the temple. We call them menorahs. There are three candles on each side and one up the middle. A total of seven candlesticks, or seven candles, but it's all one candlestick. From the earlier directions given to the Israelites, we see that they were to make golden menorahs translated as lampstands to give light and illuminate the area in front of the lamps. So when John turns around, we can almost be confident that it is a menorah that he sees. We understand that he sees seven menorahs. There's 49 candles surrounding Christ. If you turn the lights off in this building, in this room, and it's pitch dark outside, and you light a candle, it will illuminate the entire room without a question. Now, it might not be very good illumination, but you would be able to see the chairs in front of you and not walk over them like I have done sometimes in the middle of the night. When I've turned off the lights, I've walked all over the chairs. Imagine seven candles. Think about, you know, when we have our Christmas cantatas and we have the candles lit in the church. We have the lights off. It's almost as bright then as it is now with the modern-day convenience lights and the LEDs that are blinding. If I don't quit looking up, I will see spots the rest of the night. Forty-nine candles is surrounding Christ. He is well illuminated. He is well lit up. And, of course, he's 
shining with the Shekinah glory of God himself. There's no mistaking whom he's, what John is seeing. There's no doubt that he is looking at Christ because Christ is well illuminated. Each menorah has a place for seven candles. Each menorah is considered one lampstand. Some would say that John saw seven individual candlesticks, one candle per candlestick. But if God has Moses to make menorahs for the tabernacle and Solomon make menorahs for the temple, and the temple is a scaled-down version or image of what heaven looks like and what the new temple that we saw earlier coming down, should it be any surprise that we see seven menorahs or he sees seven menorahs? Why am I so in, in Thralled with this. It's an image of heaven. The temple that Solomon built, that God directed him to build, was a miniature version of the temple that God is going to bring down into New Jerusalem. That's his home. He just made it man-sized on the mount. It's going to be huge when it comes down from heaven. So let's not get so, and yeah, maybe I do get caught up in the little minute details, but we've got to understand that this is a representation of everything throughout the scriptures, throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all of them. Revelation encompasses all of history, all of eternity, forever and ever and ever. So as we're studying, keep in mind that this is a, a picture before Kodak was ever invented of what heaven is going to look like. That's one of the reasons why Revelation is such a beautiful book to study and why it's so interesting to study is because it does give us a snapshot of heaven. He gives us a snapshot of history. He gives us a snapshot of John's present day, our still our history. He gives us a snapshot of John's future, still our past. But then I believe, because we're still here, he gives us a snapshot of today. He gives us a snapshot of tomorrow. And it will give us a snapshot until we get to the very, very end. And it's just like the old Polaroids. You know, you took the picture and it spit out the front and we all thought that was magic when that first came out. I used to love to get the empty Polaroid film canisters and take the battery out of them because they were flat. I thought that was pretty cool. It's pretty powerful batteries. But we wave that picture in the air or we'd sit it down and it developed over time. And after a while, we could start to see an image come. And then a little bit clearer image. Now, unless you was the one that took the picture, you had no idea what that image was going to be. But you stood there and you waited and you waited and you watched and you watched. And finally, the image come through in full color. Well, that's what Revelation is. It's, a, it's God's Polaroid. He's taken the picture. He's laid it down on the history, the table of history. And we're all standing around watching it develop and we're seeing things now and we're going wow that's now that's right now i see that 
We're waiting for the full image to be developed. And as we get further down the road in our lifetimes, we'll see more and more of the image developing and we'll start to understand more and more what's going on with Revelation. We are not going to know 100% what's going to happen. I don't care who's teaching the class. You'll not understand it 100%. But as you study it, you see the image coming up on God's Polaroid a lot clearer. And you start going, wow, that's pretty cool. And we understand that this was written 2,000 years ago. And he tells us that there will be wars and rumors of wars. And there will be earthquake in diverse places. And there will be pestilence and famines. But he says not to be troubled. For the end is not yet. We see the image being developed right before our very eyes. And we get to see it. We're living in the most exciting times of history. I don't care who you are. You might have thought, you might have thought that uh, Alexander the Great's history was better. No. We are living in the most exciting time of history because we get to see more of the picture developed. Alexander got to see his little piece, but we get to see Alexander's. We get to see all of the, all of the European nations being developed. We get to see America being developed. We get to see us being developed. God is so good to us. That's why I get so in-depth study of some of these scriptures and why we read so many scriptures because it's developing the photograph. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you and once again for your love and for your touch, for your knowledge, for your wisdom, God. We ask, Lord, that you'll continue to bless and, Lord, that you'll Stay with each and every one as they go back to their homes, Lord, that you'll stay with them and keep them safe, Lord. Lord, that you'll let this be a blessing to those that hear it or watch it into the future, Lord, not because of me, but because of what we are studying, and that is your word, God. We ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen.